Hello and welcome to episode three of the Media Curious of Message podcast with yours truly, Pat O'Mahony. Our third time lucky guest is former RT News and primetime frontman Mark Little, who I chatted to in his latest venture's Dublin city centre offices, hence the occasional Lewis Bell tinkling away in the background. Mark and I began by reminding ourselves of when our paths first crossed in a college battle of the bands I organised, of all things, back in the late 80s. Before he explained his love of journalism from a frighteningly young age, how he hopes his new business will revolutionise online news delivery, his reaction when Rupert Murdoch came sniffing around and eventually bought his previous start-up, how he thinks RT's funding model should be overhauled, and loads more. Enjoy. Mark, thanks for doing the podcast. My pleasure, yeah. Um, because you're at an... In, like, I was delighted to get you early doors. Um, I mean, we've known each other personally a long, long time. Yeah, like the student uh, union days, right? Yeah, you were... I did student union stuff out in what's now DCU. NIHE, wasn't it? National Institute for Higher Education. Uh, NIHI in Glasnevin, as it was then. I think they changed the name because they were fed up getting posts for the Northern Ireland Housing Executive. <laughs> that was the gag at the I time. I remember being there for a bad bands competition. I think you may have had some hand in it. I was ENTS officer, so I would, oh. yeah. And I went into Trinity a lot. Yes. When were you president in Trinity? I was uh, 89. Um, so I would have been hanging around with a bunch of people as well, very politically active. But then a lot of messers, like Edna Lachlan is now a novelist. And he was editor of Trinity News, so I worked mm. on that. Um, he had the bad band, actually, that we all took part in, went to NHE, <laughs> won a bottle of whiskey. Um, so, yeah, no, around that time, it was incredibly uh, fruitful, a creative time. And also, you know, a lot of people came out of the back of that, like Ivana Bacic was my contemporary and yeah. people like that. So um, while the 80s gets a really bad rap, my God, it was brilliant. It was such an ironic time. It was. I think any time, time when you're young... Like if you were young in the 60s, you would have said it was a good time. If you were young in the yeah. 70s, we were there, you know, the 80s. I was on my second run at college uh, then, and I had just finished in 89. So I would have been out in the real world when you were president. <laughs> yeah. um, and just about to start in RT, in fact. Mm. got my first gig there in, in 89. Uh, was that how you got into journalism in the, in the first place? I was, since the age of four, you know, five years old, like I can remember being the first time I, I watched a foreign correspondent on television, a war correspondent, could have maybe John Simpson. I think it must be in the age of six or seven. Want to do that. Brian Farrell, I want to do that. Why? What was it? Storytelling. It was this idea that in our house, and I think in many Irish families, you know, you've got that second or two seconds when you're in a group of people where you have a chance to connect with somebody mm. and you've got that moment and you've got a story to tell. And whatever it is about you dropping your inflection or saying something attention-grabbing, and you got the floor for 40 seconds. And we were, I was in that kind of family whereby you, know, you had to have something to say. You had a very brief period of time to say it, and it had to enrich and add to the experience. You and had to so, fight for attention in your family. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it was like Big I was, family? It wasn't. No, it was my father. I was two uh, brother and sister. Mm. And uh, you know, it was kind of come down the Irish Times in the morning. I would take it before he would get down, and there'd be a row over it. Um, I wrote uh, my first letter, my first piece of, I suppose, journalism, Maria, would have been a letter to the Irish Times on why I didn't want to have to learn religion in school. And my father literally was reading the Irish Times and looks down and sees my name on the letter. He didn't page. know you'd written the letter. He didn't know I'd written the letter. And I kind of secretly proud, but also like, <laughs> doing. Why are you writing letters to the Irish Times at 16 years old? Um, I was actually at a report card from a religion teacher written prematurely cynical. 
which the only thing I could ever do then was a journalism. Um, I would take that as a compliment. Oh, I did. I, although I, I would say sceptical, rather. A lot of people use cynical when actually what they really mean is sceptical. Like no, no, believe he, he, meant, he meant like cynical. Oh, he okay. actually used the word Machiavellian, I think, about me. Because ah. I was also, I, I created a school newspaper called the Free Press in oh, Malahide wow. Community School. All right, so you caught the bug really, really early. Ah, uh, listen, I was, you know, by the age of 16, I was a veteran of, you know, it was all kind of agitprop as well. Like mm. My first job in media was selling advertising for Marxism Today, which was the British Communist Party's glossy monthly magazine, which was actually quite popular because it was part of this whole mm. Euro-left movement in the late 80s. I, was I knew you were a member of the Labour Party when That's you right. were at college. Yeah. But I didn't know you were that far left. Well, selling advertising for Marxism, there's a contradiction. Oh, well, I was kind terms, of the guy who would actually not just sell the advertising. I'd actually have to follow up and say, you know the ad you put in for granola? or for the Bulgarian holiday, you've got to pay us. Yeah. And that was, it. this is a collections agency for Marxism today. It's a my lovely first job contradiction going on there, you know, Marxism involved in, in, yeah. heavy, in, in bare capitalism. Yeah, I was also working at McDonald's in the same summer. Uh, so, you know, cognitive dissonance much. But I think the point was at the time, like it was a very, uh, that was Red Wedge time, Billy Bragg yeah, time, Thatcher was in all, power, yeah. apartheid, Nicaragua, you know, it's that famous old, you know, what are you rebelling against? What, what do you, do you got? got? Yeah. And I think in that sense, uh, if you weren't, you know, politically active and also thinking about the world in a big way. Mm. So that was part of a, a time when the Labour Party, the communist parts of Europe, uh, there was a real sense of awakening. Um, so I was initially thinking more politics. That was something that was in ah. my blood, I thought. Um, so but when, I realized did, when, did, when did the switch to, all right, I'll, I'll do journalism, yeah. tell me politics? It was, I realised I wasn't very partisan or ideological. I hated the idea that if you were a lefty, you had seven beliefs you had to have. Okay. You had to take a strict party line on certain issues. Um, you know, that if you were to be, uh, you couldn't be really a free thinker because if you were within this ideological bubble, which in the late 80s, you know, everyone looked the same. We all wore the same T-shirts. We listened to the same music. And it just felt very uh, claustrophobic mm. for me. And I realized okay. I'm much more interested in change, i.e., you know, what and how do societies do when they're in the middle of, you know, convulsions, mm. whether it's political or, uh, you know, economic. And so I was just fascinated by change, I realized. And it was much more fulfilling for me to go out with a fairly fresh mind um, and travel, particularly foreign correspondence, who's mm. my big love. Yeah, yeah. And uh, know that I could actually come up with a conclusion that might not be the one I started with. So the idea of having to lock myself into a kind of an ideological mindset just couldn't handle it you cut your teeth in i mean uh, people will who are hearing that voice and they haven't heard it in a long long time will go, oh mark little i remember him in prime time in rt news but you actually cut your teeth in print yeah so i started out in the sunday business post mm. they were lucky enough to give me uh initially it was just going in there as an intern or whatever and i start writing for them and i wrote freelance um and it was a great time because it was like news print at the time was still in the ascendant and it was still a golden age and, and the business post would have been relatively new back then yeah it? it had the great opening i mean it was it was actually just starting um rare medium well done was its, uh, <laughs> its slogan i loved it we're seen on billboards yeah um, that, that james morrissey and alien o'toole and and yeah. those guys in frank fitzgibbon um, and for me, you know, and, and so you got your foot in the right time, early doors, and yeah. by being there as an intern, you were yeah. In. And they were saying to me things like, "Go out there," and I said, "I have a story, do it," which was like, mm. "What do you mean I got to do it?" Yeah. And I'd come back, and I never forget my first front page story was about um, it was actually a, a, a sort of an insolvency case. It sounded very boring, but I remember who was it? James Morrissey came up behind me on Friday night and said, "Make it sing," and I thought. 
know those moments wow. where you don't know what he just meant, but you kind of do know what yeah. he meant. And writing that piece for the Sunday paper and seeing the byline and seeing uh, the words and then opening the paper to see the full article. Um, it's a thrill, you know, isn't it? It's, it it's really more than is. a thrill. I think it's a viral infection that you never get rid of. It's like picking up some sort of like parasite when you're <laughs> traveling. It just eats away at you and you're always looking for that buzz. So, yeah, so I was, I print journalism was where I wanted to go into. Um, and then RTE just oh, were hiring a, a chunk load of people at the, you the applied, end of the summer. You, you answered an ad? Yes, I did. In fact, I was still in DCU finishing my journalism course. That's, that was a postgrad, was it? It then was, yeah, by that do, stage. What, did, what was your undergrad course? Uh, I did tri- economics and politics in, in Trinity. Trinity. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I applied for the job and I, you know, I went in and I did uh, the interview and they hired about 10 or 11 of us at the time. Um, and I started out. I remember my first job was reporting on a prison riot in Fibsborough, it was Mountjoy. Up in Mountjoy, yeah. And there was a riot, and I was up on the top of the Garda Representative Association's headquarters, a fairly big building, and I had a mobile phone the size of a suitcase. The I felt bricks, like yeah. Buck Rogers, like yeah, I was yeah. this you know, future guy, and I was on the phone, the 6-1 News, and I was terrible. I, I remember just repeating the same phrase, going, slowly but surely they are moving across the rooftops. <laughs> and I went back to the studio, and Joe Mulholland, who was the head of news at the time, and said, ah, Mark, yeah. I wouldn't look back at that one if I were you. So that was my first uh, outing on the 6-1 News. It's funny he said that because I would always look back or listen back, even from the days of pirate radio in the 80, early 80s, I would listen back to everything I did because I, I thought it was the only way of being your own harshest critic. Well, there was enough harsh critics. Like that okay. was one thing You knew you didn't have to listen back. Um, yeah. One thing was that people would... One thing I've learned from my career in everything from enterprise, from entrepreneurship or to, to, to journalism is having a critical feedback loop where people can sit you down and go, you know what, mm. that was pretty terrible. And here's why. Mm. Um, and people like Joe Mulholland, Ed Mulhall was the head of News and RT at the time. Um, a lot of very inspirational people that I worked with who would come to you and say, listen, you're doing something wrong and here's how you can make, uh, you can solve it. And so that sense of critical feedback with people who actually have your back and want to see you doing well. They're criticising you for the right reasons. They are, and if you can find a way to build those teams around you mm. and give them reasons to say, do you know what, I heard you, and I've just did it differently this time around. And, and they could feel, you, you suddenly realise that with mentors, if you're lucky enough to have them, um, they actually grow with your success. But the right mentors will also give you very positive feedback when it's due. Yeah, and I think many young journalists, right, the problem is you have a culture where uh, I don't think that's around a, a lot these days. You know, it wasn't when I started out, there were literally people who come up to you unsolicited and who would, you know, give you the benefit of their wisdom. Mm. Um, and it was a lot to do with an esprit de corps as well, because, you know, you're reflecting them. When you're in the RT newsroom of the Irish Times, the Irish Independent, uh, there was a sense of competition. We're better. Uh, we're better than this. Um, there was a great public service ethic as well. Mm. That for all the criticism of RTE was literally Im- you're imbued with it the moment you walk in the door. Like you were there for the people, uh, and that was something I, I think you know really changed the nature of the feedback you got as well. Why do you think that's changed now? I don't know if it's necessarily changed for the people who still do that form. So I left prime time, and I still see in prime time and in investigations the same sense of like we will hold people to account but we also will be held to account because we're mm. being paid by the taxpayer we do a public service i think what's changed maybe is that nowadays prime time is up against champions league on you know the other channel or mm-hmm. the competitive element of the ratings need to be minded and watched very carefully 
uh, that's I suppose introduced an element of um, you know you're you're watching out for something other than the public service. You're watching out for relevance, mm. which is not the same thing. Um, I'm a great believer in metrics. Like if people don't listen or watch you, there's something wrong. Mm. But by the same token, uh, if that's all you're worried about, then you start it eats away your culture, and culture is everything in journalism. Let's skip past prime time past story full past Twitter for a minute and we'll come back to them because you just I'm you, exhausted just listen <laughs> <laughs> um, you used the word metrics there and your new business am I pronouncing it right is it Never Labs any, how do you pronounce it's actually it? called Neva Labs Neva yeah, but it's it, N-E-V-A well, well, it, it should be N-E-V-A no, if it's it, Neva it comes out where's, of where's uh, it from? I was going to Iraq getting into Iraq through Iran during the war in 2003 mm. and I had a fixer who was Iranian and he was about to have a child as his family was having a kid and he wanted to name the child Neva and you could only get Neva it was actually allocated and rationed so in the province we were in there was a surplus of Nevas to be had and he chased a guy the government allocated the government names allocated Neva. yeah so Neva was this name it means daybreak in Farsi it's a beautifully uh, evocative, yeah. I'm even okay. mistranslating it. I don't know why it stuck with me. And I said, if I ever have a child, and I didn't have a child called Neva, but I thought Neva, that would be a great thing. Daybreak, start, fresh start. Anyway, that's where it all comes from. So Neva. Let's start at basics. What's Neva about? So here's the problem. We all know that we're now overwhelmed by this endless overload of information every day to get anything decent from your new sources on digital. You've got to scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll. We're touching our phones two and a half thousand times a day on average. If you're a heavy user of social media, 5,000 times a day you touch that phone. We're addicted and it's not good for us and we know it. So what do we do? How do we create uh, a news experience that's tailored for who we actually are, that rewards our best intentions? So the way I would describe this is we're trying to create new routines for news. And it's very much like in your app, you'll have your app for sleep, you're up for exercise, for you know, food. Uh, you'll walk 10,000 10, steps because it's being active. Well, we think we can build a news experience that's based on your true identity, that allows you to set all of the filters, and that we can tell you every day, here's what it does for you. You're complete. You've got all the news you need in 10 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever you have, a train journey, biking to work, or in the evening you want to consume it. So essentially what it is is a personal assistant for you to create a newsfeed that rewards your attention, helps you live a better life. How far are you off having the technology to do that and the partnerships mm. that you will need with organizations to do that? How long are you set up and how far off are you? We're really only together as a team of five at the moment since October of last year. We're now, you know, obviously in late January. And so where we are at the moment is in that great point where the idea is now looking physically on uh, a, a wireframe and in an app that we're all testing at the moment so we can see it feel it touch it it's an amazing experience it's gone from the whiteboard mm -hmm. into a prototype and the prototype will be finished by the end of february where we've got about 25 30 people we respect in the business here in the united states and uk who are testing it out for us and that critical feedback loop going what why are you offering mm. this it's a it's an amazing point in a journey of a business so we have this idea it's very clear to us the value it's bringing. How we, as they say in the, in the sort of entrepreneurial community, what's our route to market? How we get there to a paying customer uh, is the point now where we're talking to partners. So we've been having conversations with a range of partners, potentially, 
who already have audiences that they want to give more value to. Uh, and they're the people we're thinking we'll be partnering with to reach the ordinary user. So we're about probably four to six months away from anyone seeing this experience on their phone or on their browser. Um, maybe a little longer, depending on how we do it. So right now, the great thing about Neva Labs is it is still a lab, um, and we're testing our assumptions, and we're building what they call the MVP, the minimal viable product, because it, it's totally opposite to journalism. And this is why so you know journalists sometimes are terrible entrepreneurs is. With this business, you have to create a zone of failure. So you have to be able to test something and be willing to see it fall or shot down in flames mm. and be okay with that. As journalists, we're taught, thought, don't go out on air with something that's wrong. Mm -hmm. Never take a risk with the front page. In this case, obviously, what we're doing here is we're testing stuff out. It's also very much more deep technology than Storyful, which was predominantly driven by human decision-making. This is about the language we use and how we can parse and analyze it. It's about things like, uh, you know, if you use Spotify, mm -hmm. how does Spotify find in your Discover Weekly feature music that is creepily close to your tastes, but you didn't know you wanted it. And all the technology underlying that is, for me, I'm just transfixed by it. I feel like I'm 19 years old again, and I'm touching a, an Apple Macintosh for the first time every time I go into this stuff. I suppose the biggest challenge is personalizing a news feed without succumbing to this notion of people living in a news bubble, a news cocoon. How do you get round yeah. that? Yeah, this was whole enterprise is about solving that conundrum, right? Myself and Anya both start with one simple assumption. We want to devote our lives and our careers to rebuilding trust in news. But people can trust news and it can still be wrong. But here's the problem. So too few people focus on the real issue here. It's not about facts or truth. It's about trust. If I produce fact-checking on a global scale, mm -hmm. if I produce all the quality journalism in the world and people don't trust yep. me as a source, yeah, yeah. that's the problem. And for us, we realize when we study trust as a concept, the, the biggest core component of someone trusting another person is, do you have my best interest at heart? And it's back to the conversation we just had about a mentor. If you know that I've got your back, you'll trust me. And if I come to you and say, Pat, you're not gonna like this book at the face of it, but get into it, it's mm. brilliant, and it will reward your attention. You'll go, okay, Mark, because I trust you, you've got my interests at heart. So what we're building is the idea of distilling your daily intake of information in a way that you can trust me, I've got your best interests. And then when we've got it boiled to its essence, we now expand your mind again, the same way Spotify gets who you are and then starts to add in that unexpected, surprising, intriguing, challenging thing oh, I wouldn't have chosen to listen to that, but wow, now I have. Mm. So we think it's this process of distilling, getting your identity, identifying your vital interests, letting you set the filters, and making sure no one's manipulating you, and then, then you go on that journey of discovery. But does that not mean that you are then just playing to people's biases? You, say, you talk about trust, um, and I know lots of people who trust people who actually don't have their best interests at heart uh, or who trust people who are spewing out mm. factually incorrect news. Mm. How do you get around that problem? Well, first thing is like the, the mistakes that have been made by these first generation of social platforms, and I used to work with them, right? So I know there's mistakes made. First of all, so you know, Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey never wanted to be 
the biggest distributors of news in the history. Never, right? So there are unintended consequences they're dealing with. Now, my, I would challenge them and say, now that you know the damage, it's like tobacco. If you continue to produce nicotine mm -hmm. and tobacco, and you don't, you know, you're responsible for the damage. Yeah, they have to change now, don't they? I think they know that. Yeah. Well, I think they know... You're talking about Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook and Jack Dorsey of Twitter. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I think the key for me was when I've examined what's gone wrong, it's that thing about being hidden. You know, that there's an algorithm going on in the background. You think it's your friends and family. It's not. Mm. Everything going through the Facebook feed is ranked on emotion. It's nothing to do with truth. When we get to the core science behind this, it's amazing how little is going on with these machines that is about rewarding, you know, your attention. So it all works in advertising. So to be uh, profitable, they have to make you feel emotional. And they mm. have to make you feel like you're going to buy something, do something, cry, laugh, mm. get angry. And so everything is predicated on emotion. What we're saying is, let's destroy that model, or at least give you an alternative to it. Okay. And give artificial intelligence and put it in your pocket and let you set the filters. And then also, are you open to a challenge? Are you open-minded? Can we give you an ability to find ways of actually challenging yourself? And I'm, I'm betting on the good intentions of enough people to say, I don't want to live like this anymore. You can, your product, when it is finally developed, mm -hmm could still allow people to live in that news bubble there uh, you know where only their own views are pandered to or they can set it so that you can challenge them to varying degrees depending on what they set up is that is exactly so there's so many great pieces of technology that are out there at the moment it's like a jigsaw puzzle this is mm. what we're facing so we for example if you say i don't want to see any of these dumb listicles you know the ones yeah, like, yeah. top 10 life yeah, hacks yeah. for the entrepreneur right yeah, yeah. 13 uh, ways to yeah i don't want to see like tabloid headlines i don't want to see outrage you can actually set filters that will that will scale readability that is examines the language in the articles you're reading and allow you to open you know beginner to complex we can do that so easily. In a way, you're media educating people. It's media literacy mm. on steroids. It's saying, guys, what do you want to do with your life? And you're like, okay, well, here's a little setting. So, for example, are you open-minded? I'm two on the scale. Yeah. Or I'm ten. Two means, okay, two of us might be climate change deniers, right? It just so happens that you do, you actually believe, I'd like to hear alternative points of view. Um, two Christian evangelicals from Des Moines, Iowa. One of them happens to believe that climate change is real. Mm. I want to connect you two, because you're more likely to take an opposing, contradictory point of view from someone just like you yes. than you are from the New York Times. Yes. I want the New York Times and the BBC and the RTEs to be seen and more prominently seen, because at the moment, there was a survey out yesterday from Edelman telling us that 59% of people don't know where the quality news came from. Because if you see these feeds, the brand disappears. That's right. There's no difference between the fake news factory from Macedonia and the BBC because the brands disappear. We want to introduce them again. And so you know, if you're going to believe some kid in the basement that's spreading lies about climate change and you're going to think that's as good as the BBC, that's your choice, Buster. But don't ever tell us you didn't know. Okay. Okay. That's kind of the first yeah, step. Yeah, yeah, now, yeah. That sounds very antagonistic, but what it means is essentially surfacing all these signals and giving you the ability. The ball is back in my court. Yeah, it's like a map, it's like GPS. Like It's literally just saying, what do you want out of news? Do you monetize it through straightforward subscriptions? Yeah, and it's straightforward subscription in itself is a contradiction in terms. So the old days of having uh, you know $10 a month or 10 euro a month for a newspaper, um, I think what's happened happens, we're starting to see very innovative approaches. 
to paying for news. So we've got micropayments, which means rather than paying for a full newspaper, you pay article per article. Pay as you um, go. Pay as you go. Mm-hmm. There could be ad-free models where you know a subscription newspaper can give you 10 free articles a month, and then you hit the paywall. Um, I'm fascinated by some blockchain. So blockchain, I know I'm going to now talk more science fiction to you, but essentially there's a ways of an ability to value your attention. So you happen to be more attentive, uh, pay attention to news more. Surely you're, you should be given value for that. Surely there should be a way of tracking the fact that you've used uh, your brain to sort news from noise, and you're more valuable now to a publisher, to a marketer. So I think there's Does ways... Does that mean you'll just be hit with more ads? If you choose. If you choose to take... So you pay extra for less ads is, is kind of... You can turn it off. You yeah. can turn the ads off. But if you decide, I'm okay to hear a few uh, choice offers from an airline or mm. a hotel chain. Mm. They know that I travel a lot. So you know what? I'm okay because I'd like to get a good deal now and again. And the advertiser has the benefit of knowing that the ad's going to land on the right person. So the systems we have right now, people tell me, well, all oh, people will never pay for news. You would not believe how bankrupt literally, physically, mentally, financially, ethically, the current system of advertising online is. You go onto an average page when you read the Irish Times, 15, 20, 30 ad trackers, pieces of technology that are lodged in your browser are following you around. Mm. You would not believe how much money is wasted on fraud and advertising. So, you know, when people tell me it'll never happen, change will never happen, uh, I can tell them that we're sitting on a, a system that is imploding. Um, I have people telling me, you know, using the word adpocalypse within two, That's three great years. Word, adpocalypse. Yeah, like what that. happens when advertising is no longer working for anybody? And I think we're at that point now. So the price of free news, i.e., the amount of crap you got to go through, mm. um, you know, even take an addiction. And the studies out saying that people who frequently use social media are 2.7 times more likely to be depressed. <laughs> the apps that we use most, longest, make us unhappiest. The apps that make us happiest are the ones that we get in for a few minutes and we get out again. Meditation apps, mindfulness apps, health and fitness apps. So I think what I'm seeing is, I know this will all sound kind of strange because it doesn't really exist in the current form. And you expect to see it go live by the end of the year? By the end of the year, this will be in the hands of users in some form. Now, it may be that we work with partners Mm. who already have people who have shown some sort of need or capacity to pay or interest in this kind of model but really what we're saying is we're going to build a personal assistant so you might buy you might subscribe to a neva labs app or you might via the new york times subscribe not knowing it's a neva labs app but it may be part of their offering yeah i mean right now we're in that stage where those conversations are happening being concluded we haven't had to conclude them but i mean for us for me success is in three four years time we have built the most highly attentive news audience in the world, and those people are getting value that can be tracked and quantified okay. and help publishers and brands reach those people. You made the big leap out of what we will, for ease of time and laziness, <laughs> from traditional <laughs> journalism to uh, the digital world where it wasn't a matter of producing news, but a matter of filtering the noise. Mm. When you left primetime, was it towards the end of 2009 or early 2010? Yeah, yeah. I left right at the end of 2009. And you set up 
with with Dave was it with David Clinch and a f- few other I know he was involved I met him with you over last week yeah you know uh, I mean it was me on my own and then uh, Gavin Sheridan who was the original Gavin, blogger in there, Ireland yeah. and then David came on board and we became a very tight team and you set up Storyful that's correct which always in, uh, used to confuse me because the documentary strand on the BBC was Storyville and Paddy McKenna was in a band called Storyfold and I had to think about which of the three I was there was a company about. called Storify that start at the same time and we would go into the same building so ah, Storify okay. would be coming out of the New York Times as we walked in um, we even got mixed up when we were bought by News Corp they released a press release at one point which had Storify, Storify. so yeah uh, so what was minds. Storyful was Storyful an early version of Neva or yeah. was it part of that journey your job at Storyful was to verify stories yeah, I think I, I look back at an analogy I used to make about water, you know, like the first person, Bally Gown, produced a bottle of water, and we all laughed. Who's paying for water? You're not paying for the water. You're paying for the distillation, the purity, the brand, the kind of confidence that you know, the mobility, you know? Mm. You bought this bottle of water, you stick it in your bag, and you know what's there. Mm. So my blinding revelation that led to Storyful was a guy called Clay Shirky, who was one of the early theorists of the digital web, and he said, you know, here comes everybody, was his famous phrase. And he said, if I was creating a news company, I would not create a single piece of original content. I would focus on how we help sort the news from the noise. What's the package that comes in? Mm. And I realized, having seen revolutions in, you know, Iran in 2009, when I realized I wasn't being sent by RTE, and all the foreign correspondents in Tehran were in the hotel room, locked away, hearing third-hand rumours. Meanwhile, I'm in Dublin on Twitter, watching first-hand testimony in real time from 17, 18-year-old kids armed with smartphones. Mm. And that was the holy shit moment for me. And I thought to myself, now that everyone has a voice, who do you listen to? And that was the fundamental goal of Storyful, was to say, I know this is a crazy new world, but there's real value in all of this craziness. Mm -hmm. And if we as journalists become the filter, then that's a business, and it's also, I thought, a public service. And it's the same philosophy now that every individual is their own gatekeeper, but they don't have the tools to help them do a job that only in previous generations was only done by journalists. So that's kind of the same continuum from that moment to this. Uh, I suppose in all of that, there, there was that real thing when I was 19. You know, I was a journalist, but it was a means to an end. I, I wanted to help people cope with change and make the most of it and embrace it. Um, so I've been very, you know, I would describe myself as kind of libertarian or progressive, but it's in the deep root of what I do is to say, how can we build things that help people adapt to change? And that's kind of a broader philosophical approach to both enterprises. When did you know Rupert Murdoch wanted to buy Storyful? I was at home one night, I got a call from someone in News Corp that I respected who said, are you interested in investment? And I said, um, yeah, yeah, we're going to be raising money later in the year. I said, well, you know, Rupert doesn't take minority stakes, which is kind of his way of saying, would you be interested in selling the company? Um, so he obviously knew personally. I don't think initially he knew who the fuck we were. <laughs> I, it was because it was a core of people in News Corp. And, um, you know, whatever people think about Murdoch politically, yeah. he has been one of the people on the cutting edge of innovation, partly because he knows the writings on the wall. He founded the first tablet app, uh, The Daily, um, which was the first news for the tablet. Uh, he worked with Steve Jobs on that personally. Um, and then in this case, he had a very forward-looking group of people around him. 
who spotted us because we were at the time uh, Wall Street Journal were our clients ah, and they'd okay. taken a big interest in us and we really enjoyed working with and them. He owned the that's part he owns the journal. Part of uh, journal you know we were working with the Times in London so yeah. he, he was we were bouncing up against him sure uh, but it took you know eight months uh, between the initial interest and the sale um, it almost fell apart a couple of times and then we had other interest from other potential bidders um, so yeah it was a funny time we were also thinking well will we raise other money um, I think the company broke even the day after we sold or two days after we sold the company so we were close to going on our own independent path mm. but um, we realised that that would potentially kill the company if we were on our own and the best way to achieve everything so we were selling we sold the company about 35 people employed in Dublin mainly office in um, Hong Kong by now I think it's it's well over 150. I, I couldn't even, actually, I shouldn't say that. I think it's closer to 200 people around the world, and it's doing great guns at the moment. Do you look on them with pride, even though you're not involved I, anymore? Yeah. There's no better feeling than I see f you know, people I know, people who worked in Storyful, who, when they came to me, were just starting out in their careers, are mm. now in the New York Times and CNN, or, you know, people who work for the International Criminal Justice uh, System, trying to track down forensics around uh, war crimes. Um, and then the people I still meet when I go into Storyful, even we were out having a pint with a bunch of Storyful people and someone came up and said, you don't know me, but I work for Storyful and telling me their story. Um, yeah, listen, the, be the best boast of my professional life is I built a team that built Storyful yeah. and that continues to build itself. So uh, I can claim no credit for the greatness of the people who went on, but um, there's a little piece of me that goes, um, you know, if, if, if I had to pack it up tomorrow morning and I was put in the ground, um, you know, that idea that you build something that lasts is just incredible. The figure I read was 18 million? Company was sold for 18 million. And remember, anyone who knows anything about startup companies knows yeah. that there was a ton of investors in there. Yeah, yeah that's what I was wondering. Uh, yeah, you didn't, you didn't skite a, off with a check for 18 million no, and put it into the Mark Little account. Not at all. There's a tax man. There's, uh, there's all kinds of things that happen. So you, you end up. But it does give you, it. it does give you, I know you worked at Twitter. You headed Twitter Ireland for about a year after you left. Yeah, I joined them as the, uh, the VP for media partnerships, which meant I dealt with all of the across Europe and parts of and Africa. Mm. So I would be responsible for everything from you know making sure Real Madrid were tweeting to the Queen to the publishers um, and that was a team across Europe and then I became halfway through that period of time I became the MD of uh, Twitter Ireland which is the international mm. headquarters and left just before Christmas last year so my job was to sort of take care of the world and then Twitter itself because the challenges it was facing decided to bring the teams that I was running working with back to America ah, okay so there was that kind of team was gone so I was listen it was one of the it was such a great job um, but it just it, it didn't really have uh, for me personally a, a productive future for it so you're then sitting around at home with a wadge of money left over from the sale of Storyful uh, not the full 18 million <laughs> <laughs> sadly <wish>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but still a healthy chunk of money um, yeah, and it gives you that luxury of being able to have time uh, to 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 think Yep. Um, and also to seed fund Neva Labs. Yeah, I mean, I disappeared into a cave, really. Um, at the time when I came out of Twitter, it was only after the US elections did we realize just the impact of misinformation. So I became very obsessed for a couple of months in how I could play a role. So initially I was working with uh, a lot of nonprofits. Um, I was working with a, an organization that uh, Storyful had a fund, fund and... I thought about going into that, so I'd focus completely 100% on finding ways to build 
some of the things we knew about Storyful and, and essentially use them to try to solve the misinformation crisis. But in all of that, I realized part of the problem was if you don't have sustainable businesses that are built on trust, you know, it, it's all pointless. You can spend all the money in the world, get all the fact-checking in the world, but if, if people don't, ordinary people, don't have things in their lives, their busy lives, that they can grab onto for mm. truth, and they believe them and they trust them, there's no point in all this non-profit money. So it, that's when I decided... I'm going for it, and I'm young enough that I've probably got one grueling startup in me again. Yeah. The first time around, it's like no one has ever faced this problem ever in, in history. Yeah. That's the way you feel. You're on your own. You're lonely. Most of the time, you're soaking up the anxiety for the team around you. Is it you. a roller coaster ride? Yeah. I mean, I have a friend who's a venture capitalist who said to me, he, they call it the daily kick in the bollocks. Like, you'll walk in the door, and a great thing will happen to you in the morning, and that's guaranteed in the afternoon to be kicking yeah. kick in the head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think what happens is the second time around, you become much more zen because, well, I've faced this before. It's not a big problem. You don't take it personally. Um, and so, yeah, it's, uh, it takes a little bit of gird in your loins. And you described yourself uh, a few minutes ago as a libertarian. So obviously you've abandoned your, your Marxist labor roots. Yeah, I wouldn't. Actually, it's funny I say that. I, I, no, I haven't. I mean, I, I still probably, from my point of view, most of my values, political values, haven't changed. Oh, okay. Um, you know, uh, Phil Lynn is what I think it was who said, in my uh, heart, I'm a, I'm a socialist. In my wallet, I'm a capitalist. Yeah. Uh, and it's the contradiction of running a business. But I suppose what intrigues me about news... Is And I, I talked with Susan Daly in the last podcast uh, about this when we were talking about fake news in that. Um, and I had a, a, a very quick discussion with someone. I saw the post during the week, and I'm not a Steven Spielberg fan, and I thought I didn't enjoy it. it, it the time flew, but it, it, it romanticized mm. um, journalism. Uh, and it also made it out to be you know, the defender of all that's important when in fact it's part of the setup. It's, 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 you're in hock to advertisers and, you know, subscribers and you, it's a middle class business. And so all the biases that go with that. So those who screamed fake news actually were pushing against an open door because a lot of people knew and know that our media now is not 100% objective. Mm. Uh, the nature of the business uh, sullies it. Everyone does a business show or business column, as I said to Susan. No one does a trade union or a workers' rights show or a column. Uh, so you know who's paying the bills. Um, how do you get over that with Neva Lab? Do you do you look at the theory of the news? Do you look at you know in any if you go to college and study journalism, you'll see what makes news. It's got to be violent. It's got to be mm. you know, action. Like no one looks at the build-up to a strike. It's only a strike because, yeah, you know, exactly. it's, and, and, and then you tend to interview the trade unionists yeah. outdoors. You tend to interview the bosses indoors in their office, which makes them look a lot more, you know, subconscious. Yeah. There's a whole lot of subconscious things going on. Yeah. So you can never give someone an objective this is the world as it really is news because everyone has some kind of bias. Yeah, but the clear point here is knowing when there is one or the other. When this is my objective opinion or when there's something that is a fact and where those places live. Now, the thing for me personally is I, I hate media criticism. It gets really on my goat a lot because, first of all, it implies that there's a conspiracy there that, you know, I know that having been in journalism now for 25 years, journalists are not that organized. No, right? it's not a conspiracy. But, it's just what comes out of yeah, the, no, the workings, the I way think, it runs. I think the problem is that this whole like nostalgia for the days when it was better, 
right? Don't, yeah, I agree. And when I, I see the post was. or I see, yeah. you know, all these things are, now this whole thing, the democracy dies in darkness is the Washington Post, it's like catch line. It doesn't. Yeah. Sometimes it dies when the blinding lights, there's too much for us. Mm. There's too much going on. And we don't know who to look to. So for me, personally, part of the problem is the old way that journalism was thought of. You know, the famous, um, the famous line about, was it uh, Jeremy Paxman? It was uh, apocryphally supposed to have said, you know, why is this bastard lying to me is the thing I say to myself every time I face a politician. Now, that's funny. It has its place. But you think about that, that role is journalism to tear people down, to keep people, to hack away. Everything, all the language we used to use about the hack being the thing we wanted to be because we were fighting the good fight you for the were people, a hack right it's a, yeah you were yeah, in every yeah, day yeah, and you were like, like you were smashing the boss's system mm. the thing was that it was all predicated on I know what the problem is and I'll tell you okay what's the solution and journalists had a deafening silence mm. okay. they never had responsibility for anything so there's a, an emerging movement called solutions journalism which says I'm not just going to tell you about climate changes I'm going to explain to you the range of options you have from being an individual who has a responsibility to being a citizen who votes for governments. Here's what you can do on the foot of the problem I have just mm -hmm. exposed. And, and showing people that, that the problem we've had with journalism it leads, you, leads you feeling powerless and full of rage. And that's what elected Trump. So for me, for all the people who tell me that journalism should be about fighting the man, that's what led to the man Donald Trump being elected because you left people feeling impotent and powerless. Mm. In my definition, journalism is two things. It's a public square. We all come together, left, right, libertarian, capitalist, socialist, and we agree that the rain falls and it's wet. And tomorrow morning, the weatherman is going to be believed by all of us, right? We're not going to have a different perception of things like that. Where is the balance of the public realm, right? Now, beyond that, journalism is then a personal service. It gives me information about the Lewis because I take the Lewis or the Dart. My Dublin is different to your Dublin. So it has to be personalized so that our basic interests every day are taken care of, our need for opinion. But the thing is that we clearly mark where these things stop and they start. So RTE has to be, I think, broken away from advertising. I have to say that there should be a public subvention. I think corporations who are in the media business should pay for public service journalism that has no advertising. I really feel wow. very... I mean, I, 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 agree, uh, to a I agree to a degree in that it wouldn't it be lovely, um, but there are a lot of European mo uh, broadcasters who have that advertising licence fee as, uh, as well. I'm not saying... I'm not also, saying, but if, you're, if you've advertising, yes, you're in, you're, you, have, you know who's fo who's follow the money, but if you have a licence fee you know that if you upset not the government of the day, but mm. the political classes. But don't mix up public service with license fee. There's lots of options here. Mm. I mean, we can be talking about the idea that there is literally going to be taxation on corporations who deal with media. But government can change that and, exactly. and scupper you if you turn out to be a too... Right. If you, if you dig too deep. But the problem is I think more and more people are losing their connection with public service mm. media, right? Mm. We need yeah, to yeah. reconnect in some way. Okay. And what I'm saying is that if you look in societies where there is no polarization, there are the countries that have strong public service media. Yeah. If you look at the difference between, let's say, Holland and the United States is in the middle, most media in Netherlands are, in the, are close in the middle to the public service broadcaster, and there are outliers in the left and right. And they're countries that show very little political polarization. The United States, there's no middle. You've got NPR as a tiny public service, but that's pretty much on the left. 
There's nothing in the middle. There's extremes on both ends. And that's where no public service media spells doom for the idea of unifying around some common core of assumptions about what it means to be Irish, what it means to be human. Mm. Now, what I'm saying is we should have very clear profit motives around some other things. Um, I'm better at serving a local community than someone else, therefore you pay for local news. The idea of newspapers publishing a newspaper every day that takes, if you read everything, an hour and a half, two hours, three hours to read is nonsensical. If you wanted to, from my point of view, start the Irish Times again, you'd work out what people would be sort of, what people would be, uh, what would they fear they would lose if the Irish Times folded tomorrow? You know, if you were to disappear off the face of the earth, what would people miss? And that's what you should be doing. Okay. So forget about breaking news. If farming <coughs> is, is a competitive advantage, you know, go for farming. Um, and then think about people's lives. People don't live lives, news, sport, business. They're a commuter at eight, they're a professional at nine, they're a foodie at lunchtime, and they're a fan of Game of Thrones at five in the evening when they're on the dark going home. They're complex people. The idea that you have some common denominator, one single publication, and that's why I talk about a Spotify for news. Now, it's, that's a simplistic way of putting it. But multiple sources, which are personalized to us, but at the core, have the same message that we all share. And that's where public service comes in. And I think that can be an investigative unit. I'm, I think when I say at RTE, I'm not saying RTE should be just license fee. I'm saying the parts of RTE, like celebrity, you know, come dancing, should not be funded by this, you know, the same way that uh, okay. prime time is funded. Okay. And I think creating that difference between entertainment and personal services and relevance and the public service point mm. about where, what do we say when we're together? That's how I define journalism. And the final part of that is solutions journalism, is that if I think there's a kind of a, an obligation on journalists when they call bullshit to explain the alternatives, or at least give people a sense that they're not powerless. Um, and that, for me, is the real reason populism is now rising, is because we have been led to believe that everything, every institution, doctors, religion, the government, journalism, um, really is just not worth it. Uh, and we've turned our back on it. And the surveys are showing a drop in trust for it. I mean, platforms have increased that and have, have turbocharged that. But, um, you know, for me personally, I think that's part of the problem is that journalism, when I grew up, was all about fighting the man, and that was it. It has to be about something more constructive, something that gives people hope. Tell me about your own daily media consumption. It's funny because I've only really started reconstructing proper routine every day because for years I just relied on scrolling through Twitter and building you know power tools that I would get there's a thing called tweet deck where you can build Twitter lists all that do you now, still read uh, newspapers do you so I get I, I, I read newspapers but not as papers so Online. so I basically would have uh, a thing called nuzzle which will turn Twitter into a kind of a newspaper for me in the morning ah, okay I have uh, I buy the Financial Times weekend edition because it's got just the best writers on a Saturday. That's the only physical newspaper I would buy. I buy the Sunday Business Post maybe on a Sunday. Uh, generally what I'm doing is also now with Alexa, I programmed a flash briefing, which is the news from BBC, RTE, uh, NPR, uh, New York Times, a couple of other, and I can put that into a 16, 17 minute window. So put the coffee on, have breakfast, listen to that in the morning. Uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I listen to Audible, so I get books. I read more books on 
audio than You'll I do. You'll be glued to off message podcast from here on in. Here, I'll, I'll, you know, listen. You'll be all over it like a rash. I will. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when it's big money, I'll <laughs> come back to you looking for a slice. Hey, uh, hey whoa, well, you, you're the one with the big money. Come <laughs> on here. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, generally what I do is I will dip into Twitter for very short bursts of, mm. of time. Um, and beyond that, you know, I, I end up going down rabbit holes sometimes that I love. That's what I love about social media. I'll be reading something, um, you know, uh, an article which will link to another article, and before I know it, I'm reading a 10,000-word essay on the meaning of life. And mm. I suppose that's the serendipity of uh, social media that I still love. I have to say, over the past year, two years perhaps, I've fallen out of love with things I used to like. Um, like? Well, I find it much harder. I, I Honestly, I'll confess, I find it harder on Twitter now to, to get uh, fresh views. I find it's, you know, it's tougher and tougher. I'm spending more time uh, getting less back um, from generally from social media, um, you know, and I find myself, you know, trying very hard, harder perhaps than I used to, to connect with things that surprise me, um, which is, you know, a bit of a difficulty. And that's partly why I'm building Neva, because I know I still have an unhealthy, passionate love affair with Twitter. Um, and I think from that point of view, I'm a little bit disappointed over the past couple of years. You want to be surprised, so you assume others will too. There's something about it. Like, there's, there's two drugs go off in your brain I'm fascinated by. One of them is dopamine. Dopamine, yeah. Which is the same thing that addicts you to drugs. Yeah. The second is oxytocin, which is uh, sort of connected with serendipity and the sense of belonging and familiarity. It's the dopamine hit you get when you see a little notification that someone has liked a post or yeah. retweeted you know, it's that exactly. Ooh. The oxytocin is more when you see an idea from somebody and you go, "That's exactly what I was uh, trying okay. to think about." Yeah, right. And it's actually uh, it, it's 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 present in childbirth. It's it's part of that process. Okay. Of, it's actually part of what we uh, talk about when we think about the three things in life you do. The first is their, your fight or flight. So everything's a threat, and dopamine kind of lives there. Uh, and this, when you lean back a little bit and trust other people and be part of a community that's when you get more of that oxytocin feeling. So your brain is telling you, it's okay, there's people around you. As opposed to, you are going to be attacked any moment now, you've gotta be on guard, and that's the way that social media can leave us feel. Do you watch television? Do you listen to the radio? Do you go to the movies? Uh, yeah, all above. I mean, I didn't listen to the radio. I mean, I don't listen to any of those things at the time that I'm told to. So I will basically, uh, you know, I will search for Netflix that no one else has seen, and still has that sense of I want to be the first to watch some crazy <clears> sort of binge yeah. watch something from, you know, a German a series. And I'll basically, will the family will move like a tribe. We'll find something we love that the whole family can watch and we'll watch that. And we'll only do it at a time of our choosing. Radio, I don't listen to radio. Uh, perhaps the weekend, it's the Mary Finucane, uh, catch a bit of Morning Ireland, but everything now is going through Alexa. So for me, that speaker in the corner, my voice assistant, so yeah. it's Amazon's. Uh, yeah. So what it does is like on my phone, I have my flash briefing programmed and that comes out of the speaker in my kitchen. And I say, Alexa, flash briefing in the morning and that's my radio. So that's programmed you by program me. You program that? Yeah. It's Do you all have to pay for that? Or, I mean, I know you pay for your Alexa, the technology yeah. in, the, in the kitchen. Yeah. Do you have to take a subscription then online? Um, yeah, I mean, you've got, this is the, control panel and I basically just I'm showing in my phone now but I'll program that and then it will come out of the speaker okay. and it also plays my Spotify so I'm Spotify for me has been a rebirth of my interest in music ah okay um, you know with iTunes when I first had iTunes I was amazed it was brilliant I would go looking for you know The Clash and before I knew it I was listening to a 
Arabic version of Rock the Casbah mm-hmm. from from a, a souk in Morocco, and and that same sense of like uh, serendipity is is the thing, is the joy I get out of radio and and sound. So yeah, I'm actually now over the last year, every moment of my day has got something in it that I think is rewarding. It's all changed from when you started out with the. What was it? Marxist Quarterly selling advertising. It was called Marxism Today. Marxism Today. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, your first uh, proper gig with the Business Post. Uh, it's a cliched question, I know, but for someone starting out now, even thinking about going into journalism, what advice would you give them? Well, the first thing is to do exactly what you're doing, is, is like get up, get a website, get a podcast, write and not just write for print, obviously, but write and talk and tell a story and be very, very clear what your story is. Mm. So that in some ways, for people starting out in any career, they, sh- they have to show, if they want a career in that, in that particular area, that they've grafted, they've got out there, they've tried, they've, lived. they've failed, they've lived, right? Mm. And even if you want to go into journalism and you end up, in my case, in Storyful, I think our first managing editor had managed a tea plantation and a sailing school. Um, by the time you got to us... But he was somebody who could solve problems, who knew people, who had empathy, who had a sense of you know mentorship, who realized that he, in some ways, in his career, lived or died by the for the you know the other people's success. So, for me personally, if you're starting in journalism, live, travel, write, find your place, and then most importantly, develop something that no one else has. So, there's now uh, the emergence of platforms like Patreon, where you can go and gather a community of a thousand people willing to give you five dollars a month which is a salary you know and all you need to do is convince a thousand people you know what you're going to talk about and find the niche find a thing that you get up every morning and it's not a job to you anymore it could be media criticism or you know it could be flower arranging find your niche and i think there are still jobs there for you to go into a traditional career but i guarantee your employer is probably going to be in 10 20 30 years time it's probably not going to be a traditional newspaper title, I feel we're going to see the emergence of journalistic cooperatives where a bunch of like-minded people who have particular skill sets will come under a single banner. The banner won't be like a masthead in a traditional sense. It will just be... Uh, an example is, a, is a, a great startup in Holland called The Correspondent where people have come to the, the platform and said, I'm fascinated by uh, digital privacy and I think I can make a beat out of this can you get me an audience that might be interested and help me market myself? And that's what they do. And these people will come, pay membership to be part of that club, uh, and that's how they support themselves. And the members will ask questions of the person, of the journalist, and set the agenda and say, have you looked at this issue? And when I was in prime time, I would go on Twitter, and people would tell me, besides I'm shit, they would also, uh, they would tell me, you know, if you're going to have the minister in tonight, you should ask this question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That form of journalism, if you're starting out right now, is very easy to trial and test because you could have a podcast, you obviously have your social media feeds, and you have some place where people can go, I like you, and here's $5 a month. And it'll become easier as we go to get tips. So in China right now, a lot of the social media creators work off a tipping system where WeChat, the dominant platform, has allowed you to go 20 cent, 30 cent, 10 cent and just drop it on musicians and creators. I think that's going to be the future where when you read an article that's really, really good, you give it 60 cent 
or you like that article, you give it five cents. You pay after the fact. You pay after the fact, yeah. Like So there's companies now that are doing... Um, I, I saw a company recently trialing the idea of uh, I won't charge you until you reach the $5 stage. And now you've indicated that you're really interested. Would you pay now or buy a time pass? Ah, okay. So I think that's what's going to happen. Individuals with real mastery over niche subjects performing either a public service or a personal service. And it's easy for the user to pay them. And there's nobody gets in the way beside the microphone or, you know, whatever the medium you, you choose to consume them in. Um, and I'd pay attention to voice and to radio and audio, which after all, I think we both worked in journal, radio for a long time. It is the most intimate, the voice in your ear. Pay attention to that. Uh, and there's no difference anymore for me between video and voice and print. Um, it's all storytelling. So for a you know, young fellow like myself who started out being a precocious storyteller when I was six or seven, the same passion that I had then is now probably closer to being fulfilled as an individual uh, today than, than it ever has been. So, you know, I'm that guy who says, this is a great time if you're young to be thinking about yourself as a, maybe not a journalist, as a storyteller. Um, and the good old days weren't that good. Mark Little, CEO and co-founder of Neva Labs. Thanks very much. Thanks, Pat. So thanks again to Mark Little at Neva Labs for being my third off-message podcast guest. I have a feeling we'll be hearing a lot more of them over the coming years. If you want to hear more from Off Message, we are now on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn and MixCloud. So take your pick. You can also sign up to get the Off Message blogs and podcasts ahead of the pack by filling out the form on any individual post page over at patomahoney.ie forward slash off message. And of course, you can follow and like it all on Twitter and Facebook at Off Message One. All shares and shout outs there, greatly appreciated. Till the next time, I'm Pat O'Mahony. This is Off Message, and thank you for listening.